is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 3, The Family, with guest Chris Johnston. Calls for compensation for the children of notorious cult The Family, whose childhood was marred by daily abuse. Tonight, its former guru lies on her deathbed. Despite the efforts of police, she was never held accountable for the pain she inflicted on the children of the sinister sect. I love children. It was eerie. This was where some of the worst crimes were committed, allegedly, against the children. No kid should ever have to put up with what we did. This is the moment of rebirth upon a new planet. Allegations of child theft at birth, the administration of a drug, LSD, to children. You start to think, I can't walk away from this. She is a sociopathic monster. They called themselves the family, but this was no ordinary family. We weren't allowed to be children. We were designed, we were designed kids. Today's episode has some frank discussion about sexual abuse and other types of abuse. If that's not something that you feel comfortable listening to, you should probably skip this episode. What you've just been listening to is news coverage of one of the more recent developments in the saga of a cult from Australia called The Family. It was founded by a woman named Anne Hamilton Byrne who collected children, subjected them to all manner of abuse, including forcible injection of hallucinogens, including LSD, multiple beatings, starvation, and other more sinister forms of abuse. What's unique about this story is not the level of depravity, it's that it was all happening within plain view of authorities who didn't feel that they had the ability to bring her to justice. And in the end, she wasn't, in fact, brought to justice. Here to discuss this painful chapter in Australia's history, Australian journalist and author and investigator of sects and cults, Chris Johnson. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. What was Anne Hamilton Burns' life like before she became a yoga teacher? Her early life was um, was dysfunctional and lonely. I mean, she 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 was born in in 1921 in a very small town near Melbourne, um, which is still a still a pretty small place all this time on. But back then, it was a country town with with um, with one road through the middle, just like a farming town. Her mother was a her uh, her, her mother spent um, I think twenty seven years of her life in mental hospitals or asylums as they were called then. She died in one. She was a paranoid schizophrenic who uh, claimed to be able to speak to the dead, who claimed to have a Tibetan guru, who was known to set her own hair on fire, um, and Anne was one of was the oldest of I think seven. Um, meanwhile, her father was um, itinerant, didn't spend a lot of time at home, went away to 
uh, World War One, then well, also World War Two. So from there, she slowly began to sort of escape that dysfunctional, strange childhood and and re- reinvent herself into into someone who 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 had her own family. Except the problem was the family that she accumulated weren't hers. So it starts out as yoga. And then she adds extra layers on to it. So explain to me how the belief system evolved and what the doctrine was about. The belief system is a is a mishmash of all kinds of things, of of um, Christian tenets, of Hindu Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, 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 cosmic sort of beliefs, aliens, reincarnation, uh, magic, all sorts of things. Through the through the war years, so through the through the um, I guess essentially the 1940s, Anne started to she disappeared. She disappeared from the family home. Um, she was known to be before that she was known to be in in, in orphanages, um, but then she disappeared and sort of reemerged um, in the after World War Two, heading into the 1950s and and reinvented herself as a yoga teacher just when yoga was sort of emerging in in the West. She set herself up as a yoga teacher in Melbourne. She was trained uh, by a Swedish woman called Marguerite Segersman who introduced yoga into Australia. Um, And don't forget, this was at a time, you know, heading heading into the 1950s, mid-1950s, when it was the sort of post-war boom you know, countries all over the world, including Australia, were trying to sort of regroup and reinvent after World War Two. We're heading rapidly towards the 60s. There's a liberalism, you know, people are, you know, we're heading towards the time of the contraceptive pill and divorce. Society is sort of, is sort of opening up from what was once very closed. She, so she sets herself up as a, as a yoga teacher in um a, a a wealthy suburb of Melbourne um, and from all accounts her early her early yoga classes were very good she learnt from the best um, uh, she was very good at it but she she was already sort of toying with spiritualism and this mishmash of basically plagiarized um, uh, religious beliefs Sooner or later, she starts targeting a certain type of woman for the yoga classes, and those those are um, in general uh, often Jewish, but always wealthy, middle-aged uh, women from from well-to-do suburbs. You could say she targeted people or women who were having midlife crises of some sort. She started to exert. Um, control over them in terms of suggesting that they might want to leave their husbands, suggesting that they might want to bring other women into her classes, things like that. So just just relatively small uh, demonstrations of control, right? And so eventually, eventually the yoga classes, you know, really take off. She's got, she's got multiple classes happening. She's gaining money and some kind of fame or infamy or notoriety from the classes what we think happened then is that the the power and control that she had 
sort of branched into a sort of spiritual control over over the the people that she'd begun attracting so she she started applying this mishmash of spiritual beliefs into the yoga classes and they got more and more strange and more more and more less about the yoga and more about the control and the the particular brand of spiritualism that she was preaching and essentially what she was saying was and she continued to say this right throughout her her life and she's she's still alive this woman by the way in melbourne she's 98 um what she was essentially saying was um stick with me don't don't tell anyone about me but but stick with me and i will break the karmic cycle so i will lead you into everlasting life she wasn't telling them she was Jesus quite at this point. That came that came a bit that came a bit later, but she was just warming up. And then a couple of crucial things happened in the very early sixties. So the first thing was that she recruited this university professor who was a an Englishman from Leeds named uh, called Rainer Johnson, who was a who was an eminent physicist. So he was so eminent that he'd worked with Ernest Rutherford. On splitting the atom, right? He was a he was an eminent physicist who had written many, many, many books on physics. But he was a he was like a marquee signing for the University of Melbourne. So he was an older guy. He was a sort of career academic, a religious man, a spiritual man. And the University of Melbourne poached him to come and head up one of their big colleges here in Melbourne. And he came over, he was like 60 years old or something when he came over. And by then he had moved slightly away from physics and into metaphysics. So he'd started, instead of writing books on pure physics, he'd started writing books on, on metaphysical topics like, like what is life, what comes next, you know. Um, and he was, he was really influenced by Eastern religions and, and, it turned out was um, having some kind of uh, relationship with someone who worked at the university. We think it was maybe a gardener who was able to tell her all about this guy's movements. And so one day in 1962, she knocked on his door and uh, dazzled him with her beauty and dazzled him with her knowledge of his movements, which she had been told, but he thought that she just knew through intuition or magic. And soon enough, they were, she was up at, uh, he was up at her house in the hills near Melbourne taking acid. And she was telling him all kinds of things about uh, herself, the fact that she was the saviour, that she was Jesus. Uh, we, we, got got his diary that he wrote and he was he was literally writing entries around this time that he was bowing down before her on his knees on acid or mushrooms or both and she was proclaiming herself to be Jesus and that he should join her group and help her lead it and by then she had through the yoga classes a bunch of middle class wealthy people following her 
men and women. So far, you're describing something not dissimilar to a lot of cults for the time period, taking acid, living in a commune. How do the children fit into this? Towards the mid-60s to mid to late 60s, um, she started to talk about this idea of, of collecting a group of children. Um, she had one child herself, a daughter, but she started to spread the idea of, of accumulating a family. And the name of the group back then was the, was the Great White Brotherhood. Um, it wasn't a, 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 a racial thing. It was just, um, you know, the whites referred to a sort of purity. That's what they saw themselves as. By now she had a couple of hundred members. Um, they'd built themselves a, a sort of a temple near Melbourne, which still stands. They called it the Santa Nicodin Lodge. It's just a brown brick building in, in, in the trees, in the, in the forest, um, about an hour away from Melbourne City. So they had a place to meet. They had a couple of hundred people twice a week um, listening to her talk. But she was definitely proclaiming herself to be Jesus by now. Uh, Raina was helping her recruit adults. It's important to note, even though it was the sort of hippie era, um, that these were not hippies. These were people, these were men in suits and um, and their wives. They were educated people and the cult leader specifically targeted people with money. So she, did, she didn't want hippies. She wanted people with money. She wanted white-collar professionals. She was attracting a lot of uh, nurses, lawyers, real estate agents, psychiatrists, um, architects she loved, um, people who could do things for her, so people who could build her things. Um, crucially, with, the, with one particular lawyer, she had someone who could, who could fake documents for her, which leads into the children. Um, she also had a network of doctors and nurses and social workers at a bunch of hospitals here in Melbourne. So that was the sort of key to the door for the children. So she had the, the, the hospital staff telling her where women were about to give birth, single women whose babies would be put up for adoption. Don't forget, this is very late 60s into the early 70s. You know, uh, women were still having babies on the quiet and having them adopted out. If they, you know, young women, if they'd got pregnant, um, they might have brought shame on the family. It was a different time. There was a lot of adoptions going on. So she had people in hospitals telling her where and when this was happening. And she had a crooked lawyer work uh, in her cult who was able to fiddle the paperwork. So it was quite simple. It would, it, it could never happen now, but it was easy then. She was literally able to identify when a child was being born, a child who would not be given back to the mother, but would be, but would be given to an adoption service. And she would sort of intercept that situation and literally be able to have the baby taken from the hospital and given to her and paperwork would be done with fake signatures etc that would prove that that had happened and then she would change their names and at first she stashed them up in the hills at various people's houses and her own but then the 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 growing cult acquired a, a lake house a couple of hours north of melbourne and they put them all there and she put three or four cult women 
into the house on, on a roster called the aunties to look after the children. But, of course, they didn't look after them very well. And that was around about the time when she dyed all their hair blonde and started dressing them identically. Um, and I think at the peak there were 14 kids in the lake house and they all took her surname and there were another 14 kids elsewhere that she claimed to have control over which were, and they were mainly the children of cult adults who had handed them over. What was the purpose of the uniforms and the hair dye? Was it about purity? No, she 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 said she wanted them all to look alike. She said she said she loved children and she wanted to make them look pretty. Of course, dyeing their hair blonde and putting bowl haircuts in sort of gingham and sort of velour outfits just looks really creepy now and has a sort of a real sinister vibe to it. It wasn't really to do with purity. It was to do with belonging. Um, she wanted to create the impression that they were all related to each other and that they belonged to her. What was the day-to-day -day life for these kids like? Okay, so there's about 14 kids in a, in a reasonably small lake house, like a holiday house. Um, you know, they'd be up to sort of three, a room, three to a room. Um, the, the, the aunties were working night shifts as nurses in hospitals in Melbourne on a roster, and so there'd be a couple there at a time. They would often also be sleeping in the rooms. Uh, we know of one who slept on a stair landing. We know of one who slept in the bathroom, you know, between the bath and the and the toilet on a mattress. So they were. I mean, it's important to know they were victims as well. They were they were being controlled by Anne as well. Um, she wasn't there. She was in one of her houses overseas because by now people were giving her money and she was um, making money off real estate deals. Um, so she was nowhere near this. She was just pulling the strings. So the kids would be woken up, you know, early in the morning. They would they would do hatha yoga and meditation. They'd set up a school at the house, which was approved by the state government at the time, who had to approve any homeschooling. They saw they saw nothing wrong with this school, and they saw nothing wrong with these children who all had the same surname and all had the same haircut. There was a, a a teacher involved in the cult who was a high school teacher elsewhere and he would take books from the high school and come to the lake house and teach them. Seemingly they were pretty well educated there, but the sort of curriculum stuff, the reading and writing, etc., was mixed in with, I guess, pseudoscience, with, um, a lot of, um, with a lot of Buddhist and Hindu stuff. They were reading a lot of Indian texts they were meditating, they were not sleeping a great deal, they were eating very badly, they were, they were cruelly punished for any misdemeanours, like small things like, for example, one boy, I'll never forget this story actually, he didn't line his shoes up properly at the door and something like that would, would, would you'd, get a, you'd get a cruel beating for that. They would dunk their heads in buckets of water, they would um, hit them with heels of shoes and sticks and canes and fists and palms. And the kids were also tranquilized to keep them compliant. And as the as the sort of 70s stretched into the 80s, this this and the kids were getting a bit older, sort of double figures, 10, 11, 12, heading heading toward their teens. 
the cruelty just got worse and worse because the the aunties and the adults that were passing through the house were under increasing pressure themselves to keep things running. And also, I guess they were kicking against the pricks as well. They knew that they were controlled and were losing their liberty and were losing their lives essentially. So everyone in the everyone in the house was in a in a poor state, and the kids were traumatized and um, abused. It's been reported that the children were drugged with psychotropic drugs. Is that true? LSD was a major platform of the cult. When they hit 14, they started an LSD-fueled initiation. This didn't really happen at the lake house. It happened elsewhere. By now, the cult had properties in the Catskills near New York and in the countryside near London. And they were also spending time in Hawaii. The kids were quite mobile, so Anne would fly them around the world to her various mansions. By now, she'd also acquired, I mean, you have to remind yourself that this is true sometimes, but by now she'd acquired a psychiatric hospital in in Melbourne. It was owned by a cult member. It was a private psychiatric hospital. She had three psychiatrists working there who were cult members. 1975, LSD was legal for therapy, but you had to get a license to use it for therapy. The guy that was advising the government on who should get the licenses was a cult member and worked at the psychiatric hospital. So of course they had a they had a virtually unlimited supply of liquid LSD coming to them straight from the lab in Switzerland where it was being made by the by the drug company that was making it for therapists. This is crazy and um so a lot of the LSD was being either used at the psychiatric hospital on recruits to the cult, people with mental illnesses who had been referred there by GPs, or it was being funneled out of the hospital and, in, and into cult properties or homes for use on, on cult adults and when the kids hit 14 on them. And they were, they were dosed really heavily. We're talking about, you know, uh, weeks of high doses for 14, 15-year-old kids. It takes between 12 and 24 hours for LSD to leave your body. And at such high doses and such small weights, they must have been absolutely immobilized. Uh, Sarah, in particular, one of the, one of the um, cult kids who, who passed away just as the, the book was being published, at, aged in her 40s, she, she, was, she told me at length about her experiences in the UK in one of the cult houses there when she was 14 or 15. Um, so we're talking, she, she lost track of time. She doesn't know if it was weeks or months. And she was repeatedly dosed, usually injected with this um, liquid LSD. Um, as, as it got later in the 70s, she was Anne was also um, acquiring conventional sort of tabs of the stuff, but early on it was it was liquid in vials, and Sarah said that she was just injected sort of, you know, every six hours in a darkened room, left alone. But also um, people would get in her ear, so Anne would would be with her, talking to her about usually about herself, about 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 who she belonged to about how she belonged to the family, about, about um, you know, her future, her past. One, one kid, uh, David Whitaker's is his name, he's a farmer now, he's 
one of the true survivors of this thing. His father was the psychiatrist that I was talking about before, who who who, who was one of the senior guys at the psychiatric hospital, and his his own father was dosing him when when David was fourteen, and David recalled this happening to him in Melbourne at a cult house in Melbourne, fourteen years old, injected with potent LSD by your own father. He's lying on a couch in a house in the forest with the curtains drawn and he starts tripping and he doesn't know what is happening to him, of course. It's 1978 maybe. An hour later, Anne comes into the room and starts whispering in his ear that she's Jesus and he's 14. You've touched on the subject, but let's return to... Sarah Hamilton Byrne, she plays a very important role here. Yeah, so she was she was um, she was one of the first kids that Anne acquired. Her name was Sarah Moore. Her mother had put her up for adoption. Sarah was was taken by the cult at birth. She lived at first as a as a as a very young baby in Anne's own house up in the hills. And she was one of the fir- in the first sort of batch of kids to go to the lake house. So she was she was she was the first. As such, she was a favourite of Anne's, but she was also the opposite. She was also um, she was sort of loved and hated by Anne. So she she described a a push pull relationship with this woman who she thought was her mother, but wasn't her mother. She described her as a sort of a evil princess who would who would or an evil queen who would sort of float into her life and 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 flutter with love but also flutter with antagonism and and hate really so sarah was very close to the cult adults but as they as the kids hit their teens she and another girl were the ones to sort of start pulling away and sarah started to started to get her own life i guess in the in the sort of early to mid 80s and was as a, as a young teenager and was starting to try and spend more time outside of cult circles. She invited a friend, a friend from the outside, to a cult house. So she's, I don't know, 15 or something. She said to this person who she was friends with from, from school, I think, come over. And the, But that was banned. That was, that was a no-no because the main rule of the cult was to keep the cult quiet. And not tell anyone about it. So this stranger's in the house. Um, by then, Sarah had been, you know, I guess misbehaving in Anne's eyes and, and growing away from her, so she got chucked out. Simultaneously, one of the girls who, who Sarah was close to, uh, a, a woman called Leanne, is, literally physically escaped from the lake house, right, jumped out a bathroom window and ran away. So the two were essentially out of the cult by then but had to sort of make their own way and they eventually sort of found each other and sort of reunited and started talking to various authorities, social workers, police, started to blow the whistle on on what was happening in, in the cult and that led to the 1987 police raid which freed the rest of the children from the lake house. What happened to the children after they were removed by the police? Yeah, so the kids in the lake house were literally taken away in a bus. Um, the cops um, raided the house on the evidence of what Sarah and Leanne had told them and various other um, 
investigations they'd started to do by then, um, having sort of got wind of a little of what was happening up there. The kids were taken into state care. They were, you know, fostered out to 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 other families. Um, but that was really only the beginning for them. I mean. Don't forget that at this point when they were freed, I mean, you might see that as a good thing, but for them it was it was a good thing, but it was also very difficult because they were told at that moment or they began to learn at that moment that they weren't who they thought they were, that these people in this house were not their parents, that their surname wasn't Hamilton Byrne, that it wasn't normal to be schooled on strange spirituality such as they were. It was It was, it was not normal to be isolated in a in a house and not be able to mix with other people it wasn't normal to be initiated with psychedelic drugs most importantly any identity that they'd managed to give themselves was wrong they weren't who they thought they were at, at least at this point the children are out but what happens to Anne Hamilton Byrne and the rest of the adherents well as soon as the police raided the house i mean look by, by then, Anne was, like I said before, she had various properties around the, around the world now, and she wasn't there. She was in the UK in her property called Broome Farm, which was a sort of stately mansion in Kent. Her husband, her third husband by now, a fellow called Bill, <clears throat> a wealthy former um, RAF pilot, he was in the house um, when, the, when the raid happened. So... She was nowhere to be seen. Pretty soon he legged it to go and join her. They had all these kids in, in care and being fostered. The police had raided the house and freed them, but they still didn't really know what was going on. But they, but they started to find out. They started to investigate what was happening. And there was a backstory here with the state police in that even though they eventually did raid the, the house in eighty seven. There was a sort of a reluctance before that, despite mounting evidence, to investigate what was happening. It was seen as a, a welfare issue rather than a sort of criminal issue. It was seen as there had been a sort of history of police in action. I think the police, the state police, were unsure what sort of crime, if any, they were dealing with. Um, it was seen as a, a sort of women and children's issue, so it was not taken seriously, perhaps, by the sort of 1980s state police. There have been rumours as to why, but it seems like the police were rather reluctant to actually press charges against Anne. Um, and there was also a suggestion that, um, that there were people on the fringes of the cult or associated with the cult in powerful positions who were preventing an investigation from happening. Now, um, despite looking at this thing for a number of years, we've never been able to establish a smoking gun around that, but we've come pretty close. Um, and certainly we can say with some certainty that, that there were um, politicians, lawyers and judges involved in the cult, or at least sympathetic to the cult. But there's never been a smoking gun in terms of corruption or preventing police activity. So I think those two things combined led to a sort of stasis in the in the with the coppers trying to have a look at it but eventually um due to the persistence of one policeman a fellow called Lex Deman who was a um started as a as a as an arson squad detective 
um, and um, was investigating a suspicious fire that was potentially cult-related. Um, he sort of stumbled into the story and unlike police people before him took it very seriously and started to, this was after the um, 1987 raid, by the way, it was just a few months after, um, he took it seriously. He started to meet some of the uh, children of the cult who were now, you know, in their 20s, um, heard their stories, started to document it, started to um, show and tell his police superiors what was happening and was given permission to work the case between arson investigations. Um, and eventually he was able to get a squad together and a task force called Operation Forest to solely investigate what had happened. And they had uh, a couple of early breakthroughs, which was um, the Colts lawyer had by then had enough and had seen through the cult leader's teachings and had got really, really guilty about falsifying documents for her for so long, which enabled her crimes and lined her pockets and no one else's. And he rolled over and started um, over a period of three months. He was interviewed by Lex DeMann and another policeman every day for three months, and he, um, he told them everything he knew. Uh, he verified fake documents. He outlined how she um, made money through crooked property deals. He outlined how she stole children through uh, fake paperwork, and he was able to sort of draw a map, if you like, of the cult's activities. And, and after that happened, the police were on her tail and the, the, I guess the manhunt or woman hunt um, in three countries started in earnest. What you've described up until now is a litany of very serious crimes. You're talking about abusive medicine, you're talking about human trafficking, falsifying adoption papers. What was Anne Hamilton Byrne eventually apprehended for? It's bittersweet. She was eventually caught, but um, because of some peculiarities of um, deportation law and some discrepancies, I guess, in state law here in Victoria and Australia and New Zealand, which was also involved um, because of some paperwork and the United States, she was only able to be busted on um, social security fraud for falsifying documents. So despite all the stories of essentially kidnapping, human trafficking, physical abuse, um, you know, drugs, none of, she, wasn't, she wasn't tested on any of those charges for a number of reasons, which I'm happy to outline. It was the 90s by now. She'd been, she'd been on the run for a number of years. She had houses in the UK, the USA, and she had a safe, a safe house, if you like, in Hawaii. Interpol and the FBI and the Australian police were looking for her. Um, there were various false alarms at various houses. Eventually, she was pinpointed at her house in the Catskills. The FBI the, or the Australian police asked the FBI to stake out the house 
So a female FBI officer posed as a as a uh, um, or got in the van with a with the male delivery person as the mail was being delivered in this particular area. She had a look at the house. She identified that it was the right house and that they were there, Ann and Bill, that is. And so it was raided by the FBI and she was arrested and put in a remand or put in, in prison on remand in, I think, White Hills near New York. The deportation to Australia was, or the extradition to Australia, the process for that started. Back in Melbourne, the sort of legal gears start grinding um, with the prosecutors and the police, and they had some evidence of um, the children moving around, the children being stolen and kidnapped. But you know, these were these were um, young adults by now who were still. Um, deeply traumatised by their false childhood. I mean, they were only just starting to learn with varying degrees of success who they were. They'd scattered around Australia. Some had disappeared completely. Um, some were in a reasonable state. Some were not. This was a, acute trauma that they'd been through. And so the legal, the legal system and the police, who were very sympathetic to them, I guess, um, decided in the end that rather than re-traumatise them by putting them through a court trial, because Anne and Bill had indicated by then that they would plead not guilty to serious charges, rather than re-traumatise the kids and have them appear as witnesses before a um, Supreme Court. So they thought rather than have them sort of Reinterrogated and challenged on their memories of the of the events, they would um, they would not do that, and they would they would um, try and lay charges on Anne that would allow her extradition back to Melbourne, um, and would also possibly lead her to plead guilty rather than not guilty. So, what they did was they they brought her back and tried her on minor charges rather than the major charges, which was incredibly disappointing for the police, but also satisfying in a way, because even though they couldn't lay the big charges on her, they were able to at least get her before a court and get her to say the words guilty um, and have at least some sense of satisfaction that she that she couldn't get away with what she wanted to get away with. Many people s still feel that she should have been tried on more serious charges. Some involved in the trial and the case are quite happy that they managed to bring her back from the United States, which is a complicated legal situation, but they managed to do that and managed to get her before a court in the city where she was committing her crimes and to have her have her tried and to have her plead guilty. So the goal was partially reached. People got to see her walking up the steps of the courthouse, brought low. Yeah, not so as you'd notice. And just to paint you a picture of this woman, she was she, she was what I'd call an early adopter of cosmetic surgery. So, so this was a woman who was quite, nat who was naturally quite beautiful, but 
despite that, started having facelifts um, right back in the day. And by the 90s, by the mid-90s, when she was um, being arrested and flown back to Australia, her her hairline was pulled back so far because of all the facelifts that it was basically on top of her head. And her cheekbones were sort of like razor sharp by now and her nose was like a sort of a, you know, like a pincer sort of thing. You know, she, she figured she was pretty glam. She had the big sunnies, the big hair. She used to wear wigs, expensive clothes. Um, it would have been deeply humiliating for her to front court. And there was, you know, a bunch of um, media out the front. And, in fact, when she was first arrested in in the Catskills, the FBI uh, officer who who led it told us that Bill well, Bill answered the door and they went through the door and asked for her and she sort of glided down the stairs in a in a in a sort of a robe because it was early in the morning and um, agreed to be arrested and taken taken away but sort of demanded that she be given time to get dressed and was taking ages to get dressed and wanted to do all her makeup and her hair and the, you know, everything. And so, yeah, this was a woman who was who was huge on appearances. It would have been deeply humiliating for her to be, you know, seen in court, seen, you know, not perhaps how she wanted to be seen. Jesus has fallen sort of thing. But also, I mean, the whole Jesus thing is fascinating because um, what led to, you know, in the Bible story, Jesus was... was um, was betrayed by those closest to him, right? And that's exactly the same thing as what happened to Anne. I mean, her the, this lawyer Peter Kibbe was her was her key enabler, and he he was Judas in the end. He 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 betrayed her because didn't believe her anymore. Aside from the Australian justice system plugging some very serious holes, what is the biggest takeaway from this event in Australian history? Well, I think it's fascinating that she basically was able to get away with it. Um, I think through quirk, through legal quirks and policing quirks, she she was able to get away with heinous crimes for a long time. Um, I think it's fascinating that she was able to recruit a certain type of person and hundreds of them to enable her to do what she did. I think it's really interesting how much in common she has with other notorious cult leaders who had similar tactics. I mean, I, I see strong parallels between her, between Anne Hamilton Byrne and Jim Jones in that both had dysfunctional childhoods, um, almost cruel sort of deluded childhoods, and, and, and both were, were able to collect large groups of people and control them to the extent that they did what they were told. Jim and Anne both also used sort of tape recordings of themselves to spread their messages. I mean, I, I see strong parallels there. But it couldn't happen now. I mean, the the welfare system, the hospital system, uh, the adoption system now is such that there are safeguards around around all of those things. Whereas in the in the seventies the doors were open for people like this to exploit loopholes. I think it's fascinating that all this happened at a time of sort of counterculture. The late 60s particularly was when this group was sort of peaking and there were hippies everywhere, but there, but there was, she was 
targeting the opposites. She was targeting establishment people with money. And I think it's um I think it's really interesting that she was able to uh impose a rule of say nothing to anyone and people adhered to that and sure enough no one heard anything. I mean even now it's hard to get really hard to get information on this mob because they they they, they left no trace really. Have you had any strange encounters in your coverage of the family and Anne Hamilton Byrne? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean you can't spend you can't spend several years writing a book on a strange secretive cult and not have weird encounters. Um so yes. <laughs> Many interesting encounters and disturbing encounters during the making of the book and and many afterwards i mean i think i but i you know in all seriousness i think what will stick with me is meeting the survivors so there's a bunch of the cult kids who were in the lake house who i now know you know i'm still in touch with them um poor sarah died just as the book was being finished and just as the documentary which my colleague made she never really recovered from her traumatic experiences at the hands of the cult and being one of the first kids to be sort of inducted into it. Um, she she came good for a while. She became a doctor. Um, she worked in third world countries as a, as a sort of refugee camp um, uh, medico, I think to, you know, to give something back to the world or whatever. But she never properly recovered from the sort of um, psychological trauma of what she'd been through and died uh, alone uh, just as the book was was coming out. But some of her stories and Leanne's stories, Ben over in West Australia, Adam here in Melbourne, they were all in the in the lake house and they're people that I see and talk to and I guess just to see them getting on with their lives as best they can. I mean, Leanne, who was one of the ones to first escape with Sarah, she has her own kids now, beautiful kids, teenage kids. Just seeing her with them, I guess, having her own family and trying to sort of like do it properly rather than what she had to go through. Um, talking to Ben, who is a Christian uh, pastor over in near Perth, just talking to him, you know, Adam, who who grew up in it as well, I guess getting to know them has been really, I guess, rewarding and interesting. Um, and, uh, but yeah, some, some creepy, some creepy shit happened too. Don't, don't worry about that. Chris, just before we go, even though you said legally this kind of situation can't happen again, what do you think it's important for people to know about this story? It's, it's an unusual story. The story of the family and of Anne Hamilton Byrne, it's its very strange and very unusual. But actually, it's not that unusual. Um, cults and sects are everywhere. Um, people want to believe in something. Um, you know, as we're talking now, people are being brainwashed into belief systems that are destructive you know, just because this was in the 60s and 70s at its birth, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, the, 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 these things happen all the time. We can see it in our news cycle every day. There are people who suspend belief and who follow others into destructive or criminal or deranged 
paths. I mean, we know that. Um, that will always happen. It will always happen. That'll, that'll never stop. It'll never stop. People will always be followed. People will always follow. But what, what, what can be stopped now, I think, is the, is the criminal element of it. The child abuse side of things, I would hope, is, is more watched over now. So, you know, something like the family in, in the fine detail can never happen again. But in the broad brushstrokes, it'll happen every day. Special thanks to Chris Johnson for being with us today to talk about the family and a very dark chapter in Australian history. Thank you for listening to On Belief, a podcast about cults. I'm Karen Geyer. You can follow me at at K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at onbeliefpod. And you can contribute to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer. You can also visit our website. It's just onbelief.com. Next week. Um, so in Japan, uh, there was this comedy duo called Tunnels, and Tunnels was just massively popular, massively influential. Everybody, I mean, Tunnels was where it was at. Asahara went on Tunnels, and he's sitting there in his uh, his his famous big white fluffy chair. And he's taking questions from these kids who, you know, were just sitting around in the audience. It kind of looked like old school uh, Toll Request Live, you know, that sort of trendy youth audience there to, you know, laugh at pop culture stuff and just have fun. And they were asking him questions like, well, what do you wash your hair with? And he'd be like, baby shampoo and love is the answer to the universe. And everyone just thought this was the most hilarious, like, what the hell is this kind of bullshit? But then he also went on Beat Takashi. And like, even people here know who the hell Beat Takashi is, right? I mean, it's Beat, right? So, and that interview with Beat Takashi, where he and Beat, and they they sit there and they discuss religion and life and death. And, you know, they kind of dig a little deeper. But Takashi liked Asahara. Asahara tried to get Beat Takashi to join a lot. He even went so far as to say, you're the reincarnation of a god, my dude. It was like, Takashi didn't join because, you know, like he does his own thing. But that kind of showed a, a larger audience that, oh, hey, maybe there's some depth to this because he's not saying I wash my hair with baby shampoo and stuff. Um Shinrikyo with guest Sarah Hightower. <laughs> <laughs>